The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. And welcome. It's good to see you tonight on this Wednesday night. We're here to study the scriptures and go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. We're in the book of Isaiah, so why don't you turn there at this time, Isaiah chapter 18 for tonight's study. We looked at chapter 17 on uh, on Wednesday, uh, well, Sunday, I should say, last, uh, last Sunday, and uh, so now we're picking it up in chapter 18. And we've got to pick up our speed. We've been going too slow. <laughs> uh, we've uh, got to get through Isaiah uh, before um, the rapture happens. No, I don't know. That could, that could happen, maybe not. But, um, you know, we've got a lot of good stuff here to go over tonight. Um, it's a bit heavy, uh, however. You know, we're in these chapters that some people call this section of Isaiah. They call it the Book of Burdens. Because if you recall, so far uh, he's been saying the burden of Moab or the burden of this or that or the other thing. You know, he's going to talk about the burden of Babylon and the burden of, of Egypt. And it's a burden or the idea is the weight of God's judgment on the backs of these nations, these places. And it's because of their sin and their rebellion that there was a burden that Isaiah had to share. You got a burden. And you're going to have to bear that burden, all these places that we're talking about. And so in chapters 13 through 23, we're going to be basically looking at the various burdens. We have been looking at the burdens thus far. And um, there's seven times where the prophet says the burden of, and then fill in the blank. And so um, we left off the burden of Damascus on Sunday, and we looked at the prophecy that sort of surrounds that, uh, that, pro- that chapter the burden of the city of Damascus and, and the, um, the Syrians and what have you, and, and a radical prophecy that much of it is yet to come to pass. And I believe it's going to come to pass before the millennial kingdom, right before the millennial kingdom. And yet what's amazing about that prophecy is everything's set, the stage is set geopolitically today to have the prophecy of Isaiah 17 happen. It could happen tomorrow, and it wouldn't take much to really trigger that because all the players are in place, the weapons are in place, the political tensions in place to make Isaiah 17 happen exactly the way the Bible's saying it's going to happen. And it makes me feel that that's one more reason why we can believe that we are living in the last days and that uh, it's time to be watching and waiting and ready to uh, see the Lord and and the rapture of the church. And uh, it's going to be great. But until then, we should be busy about the work of the Lord. And so we're going to pick up here in chapter 18. And chapter 18 is because, it's interesting because um, there's uh, confusion and argument about who we're really talking about here. And, uh, and the first group is kind of obvious. It's talking about this, um, you know, this land, which is what we would call Ethiopia. Um, and Ethiopia in the biblical times was a little different boundary than what it is in modern times. But it, it's in the general vicinity, I should say, when we talk about Ethiopia. Um, but that's the, the, the region that we're going to be talking about. But in Isaiah chapter 18, we're going to also see uh, that there seems to be something greater than Ethiopia or more. Uh, it's, that, it's that dual fulfillment, maybe, um, or a more distant nation or land uh, geographically, but also prophetically, maybe. And this, you know, one of the things that, you know, Bible prophecy buffs have done for centuries is where... You know, does the United States stand in Bible prophecy? 
You know, we, we read all about Russia and Iran, Syria, Israel, Egypt. We read about, you know, even Turkey uh, and all these players right now. You know, that uh, the end times prophecies talk all about China. Um, is all about, you know, it's in the Bible, all kinds of stuff. But the weirdest part of Bible prophecy is it seems to be very silent about the United States of America. You'd think that we would be at the forefront of all the Bible prophecy, uh, you know, uh, iterations or, you know, mentions. And so people say, well, where are the United States? You know, the, one of the greatest world powers that ever have been. Uh, the land of the free, the home of the brave. You know, we, we, here we are, you know, uh, we've been one of the greatest nations for a lot of years now, and, and we're not even mentioned really, it seems. And so people try to make mentions. You know, I, I've heard people try to say, well, maybe we're the, you know, maybe we're the young lions, you know, talked about, uh, you know, there in the Bible that's, you know, the descendants of the, the old lion, which would be England. And there's some mentions about that in the Bible or, you know, um, other, other little tiny mentions that may or may not be, probably not. But there, there's one argument that says Isaiah 18 is talking about the United States of America. Now, I'm not going to die on that battlefield. Not even, I'm not even going to fight the battle because I'm not sure but you can be the judge, and uh, is it just talking about Ethiopia and that region of the world, and uh, both in the near future, uh, near and future, or near and far prophecy, or maybe Ethiopia in the near prophecy of Isaiah's time, and maybe more of a United States of America? Some people believe that, and you'll hear, you can um, YouTube it up, and you'll see a bunch of crazy people talking about crazy things. Um, but uh, there might be a, a, a point to, to this, and I'll show you what I mean about that. Now, one thing before we get into this, you know, poor Isaiah. Isaiah's got this burden that he's got to talk about. And one of the things you need to kind of be tucking away in the back of your mind is how do you think the people were receiving this burden, these words of burden and woe from Isaiah the prophet. I, I kind of wonder, you know, was, was that a fun message to give? Um, you know, I have to admit, sometimes it's kind of brutal and not so fun just teaching Isaiah's book because of all the burdens and the woes and the wrath that God's going to pour out. Um, although we have seen some bright lights, haven't we? Some really nice sections of Isaiah of redemption and the Lord saving. Uh, we're going to see more of that tonight too, where the Lord's going to redeem actually maybe some of the most unlikely people groups that you may not even know. Someday they're going to be in good standing with the Lord. People that might just be the last people in the world that you would have imagined God redeeming and saving and blessing. So I do see the spots of light in Isaiah, but it is a heavy book, no question about it, especially the first half. The burden of Isaiah, the burden of the Lord, woe unto you. That's pretty heavy stuff. Now, one of the things about Isaiah, I've told you he's articulate and he's quite the wordsmith and he uses all the different, you know, uh, tactics and techniques in writing to be effective. Uh, and he was effective and he spoke powerfully. But the one thing you have to understand, he was not popular. Isaiah was not a popular man. Uh, the more he sp uh, shared the, the word of the Lord, the more people hated him. Um, tradition tells us, and, and pretty good, you know, not, not biblical sources, but outside of biblical references, there's, there's uh, you know, the rabbis and others taught about Isaiah's doom, where the, his own people, the Jewish people, ended up hating him so much that they 
strapped them to these two kind of sawhorse kind of things. And they got out a big saw and they slowly and as painfully as they could sawed them in half and killed them that way. In Hebrews chapter 11, remember the hall of faith we talked about a few weeks ago? Um, There's those prophets that were mentioned who were literally cut asunder or sawn in half. And most scholars believe that reference in Hebrews 11.36 is about Isaiah the prophet and how he was sawn in half. I mean, that's a tough gig, being a prophet in Bible times. And, and just the stuff that was required of you. We're going to see that perhaps tonight too, some of the challenging assignments that Isaiah would get from the Lord, along with others, you know. Um, Ezekiel would lay on his side for a month, you know, just, just on his side in the dirt uh, um, as an illustration. And others would throw their hair up in the air and hit it with sword and try to chop in the air and say, you're like Israel. And all these weird sort of analogies that God would say, I want you to do this. And people thought those guys are losing their marbles. Um, but it was really the Lord saying, no, Israel, you are losing your marbles. You're, you guys have gone crazy in your sin. And these prophets were um, there to tell you of that. And Jesus would later indict the people for saying, man, even if the, if the prophets, if you wouldn't listen to the prophets, um, what makes you think you're going to listen to me? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing that the Lord would hold these people to these prophets' words, and uh, they had no ear to hear what these prophets were saying. And, and so we'll see that. You know, it's interesting because um, truth today is hard to find. You know, when you watch the news or you hear politicians or, you know, why, why is it that, you know, there's so much f- false narratives and misinformation? Uh, that, that, you know, with this whole COVID-19 thing, it's, it's, it's really showing itself as ugly as maybe as it's ever been. You know, today I just heard on the news the CDC was talking about well, actually, the COVID thing, it doesn't really transmit uh, on surfaces. You know, all this washing of groceries you guys have been doing and setting aside or setting outside some groceries and letting them sort of let the germs die. As it turns out, in CDC's tests, they're finding that that's actually not legit. It, it doesn't really transmit um, as easily. And they're not saying completely, uh, but they're saying mostly. Um, but it's mostly like a sneezing or a coughing or a touching of the eyes, you know, touching your face and not washing your hands. They're, that's, they're saying that was legit, but all this other stuff uh, they're saying uh, is probably unnecessary now. But then you hear another side saying, that's not responsible. We believe in science, even though the CD is saying, yeah, but it was our scientists who figured that out. But there's another group of scientists saying no. And then there's doctors and doctors saying one thing, another group of doctors saying others. And then, you know, we, we as a culture have learned to not trust science and doctors. And it's, and it's funny because one side would say, you guys don't believe in science. But the truth is, most sides that I talk to love science. Um, the problem is we have a bunch of liars uh, when it comes to science. And what, what drives some of the information that's so-called science? It's funny, the Bible predicted that science would come along that's science falsely so-called. The Bible says that, that it would come, come down to that. And we're seeing that. You know, there's questions. We all, I think a lot of us have questions about, you know, what's being called science. 
You know, and you see people fudging numbers and making up stories. One of the things I mentioned, you know, was the polar bears and, uh, and global warming. You know, people were, people were kind of freaking out because they saw that video of the polar bear, and I showed a picture of it in my prophecy update last Friday. By the way, if you missed the prophecy update, go to our YouTube channel uh, and uh, check out our prophecy update uh, that was uh, last Friday. Um, great, great time to catch up on what's, what's happening in, in the world today. But but the, as it turns out, the polar bear that was dragging its sad carcass along and it was skinny and, and everybody said, this is what global warming does. Um, that's what National Geographic printed in their thing and that's what the video said. Um, but as it turns out, that wasn't, uh, didn't have anything to do with global warming. It had to do with a, a bear that was sick, um, not because of global warming. And they were just using it for propaganda purposes. And then, you know, they would try to tell us, you got to believe this. Uh, and, and then we see stuff like that, and, and you kind of, you start to become skeptical. It's not because you don't love science. Um, I love science. Uh, I just don't trust people. And, and here's the, the problem, is there's all this information out there, and you say, why would there be so much misinformation? And, and why are people so angry? And why are there so many different sides? And the answer is kind of twofold. It's usually because of money. And it's because of power. People want power. People want money. And so, you know, it's not going to get more viewers on CNN or Fox News if they say stuff that's just simply true. You know, true is, uh, is, is boring oftentimes. And so you got to kind of, you know, twist, you know, stretch the story, give God the glory kind of thing. You know, just, just put a little twist on it. Have you seen how people take headlines? And the headlines are so misleading. You read a headline, and, oh, it's clickbait, you know, and you click on that headline, and then you go there and you kind of go, oh, that's not, the headline's sort of right, but it was kind of misleading. And you, you think, oh boy, man, who can you believe? And, and so there's the, the idea of money because they need viewership and they need sponsors, and so they're trying to be more sensational, and they want to create this big war. And, and just by nature, that's only going to fester and get worse until something happens. Uh, I I don't know. I'm not sure I know what the answer is as far as trying to figure out the messaging and the news and honesty. I don't see an answer except for one thing, Christ's return, the rapture of the church, Jesus returning. I don't see an answer to this humanity's, you know, driven desire to be wealthy, but then also powerful. I I believe even in politics, it's hard to find truth because people will say anything. Maybe you're watching, even today, the feud between our president and Nancy Pelosi. You know, uh, she said that he was morbidly obese, and he said she was mentally ill. And then she said, boy, you know, uh, uh, it, it was just back and forth of this, you know, smashing each other with these words. And, and it's just become kind of nasty. And uh, some people say, well, Trump started that. I think, you know, you get, you get what you, what you, uh, who you are. You know, they always talk about the president or the kings or whatever through the ages. Every culture gets what they deserve. Uh, it, it, it's an indication of really our society. Um, and it may not be as much on any single person. It's just kind of where we are as a nation. So all this stuff, the, the, the thing is that I'm realizing more and more truth is not popular. Truth doesn't make a ton of money. Truth doesn't stir up trouble that gets you more clicks. Uh, truth oftentimes doesn't uh, get you more power. Um, but just ask Isaiah the prophet. He was a bearer of truth, and that didn't work out so good for him. In fact, any of the prophets in the Old Testament, it didn't work out so good, them declaring God's word. 
And the reason I bring that up is as we read these burdens and stuff tonight and see what Isaiah's have called to do and be, it might just be good for you to think about what are you a part of? Are you more a part of just bringing the truth into people's lives? Which, man, I'm finding there's not a lot of truth anywhere. And, and the one place we can find real truth is the Word of God. Man, as long as we're there, I think we're on safe, truthful ground. As soon as you veer off, man, it doesn't take much. You find yourself wading into a cesspool of deceit, manipulation, uh, you know, misinformation, uh, rhetoric, uh, you know, brainwashing. Like it goes on and on. And, and right now, these are dangerous times, information-wise. Um, and so I kind of love just saying, let's, let's just stick with the Bible. Now, the reason I bring that up is because when we close tonight, I want you to think of yourself and think, am I more of an Isaiah who's willing to say the truth and even do the unpopular thing and be part of that messaging? Or am I more of a part of messaging stuff that doesn't matter or that's controversial or stirring things up, making people upset? And it's something you, you should be praying about. Uh, I'm not telling you what to do. It's just something, this is you checking your heart between you and the Lord and ask yourself, am I more of the, of the solution that's going on or am I more of the problem? Uh, the reason I want us to ask that question is because it's so subtle how we can find ourselves pushing things that might be important. Maybe they're not, but there are things, there are things often that are more important and more truthful. Isaiah's bearing words of truth here, and that's what I think you and I should be doing. That's what we are called to do, uh, to, to be part of what Jesus did. Jesus, he not only spoke the truth, he was the truth. He, uh, and, that, and we get to be all about that message. So something to think about, something to pray about. So back to our story here, we got the, the burden of Ethiopia, the, the, you know, and, and, and maybe it's talking about America. Let's take a look here in verse 1, Isaiah 18, 1. It says, Woe unto the land, shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the waters, saying, Go ye swift messengers to a nation scattered and peeled to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out, trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. Now, it's the language here that gets people really interesting. When you, when you, when you go into the, the Hebrew text, some of these King James words, and, and even some of our other translations kind of um, uh, pare it down a little bit, but there's some interesting language. When you look at the original text, when it says, woe to a land shadowing with wings, it, it might just be talking, it's got lots of birds, <laughs> birds and insects. And by the way, Ethiopia was called the land of birds. Um, there, even in ancient times, there was uh, known to be a lot of birds there. So this would fit the Ethiopia narrative. Um, but it's interesting because it goes on and says, uh, beyond, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And just, uh, man, if, if you're into ge geography, you should probably get out a map and check this out. But in that time, basically that was the end of the world to a lot of the people in biblical times, especially in Isaiah's day. Uh, you go past the rivers of Ethiopia, you're out in no man's land, the edge of the earth as far as they were concerned. They didn't know about South America and about, you know, um, any other place uh, around the world. But just, as, you know, they knew there was something past there, but it was kind of desolate desert. You know, Western Africa becomes kind of this, this no man's land. 
and they didn't go down there. So, um, but it's beyond the rivers. And so the, the language here, this is where some people say that Isaiah must be talking about something mysteriously different than just Ethiopia. Um, that's where the discussion starts. And then it says in verse two, that send ambassadors by the sea. Um, nobody's going to uh, or from Ethiopia by the sea. It's not really happening that way. Um, by the way, do you remember the... Um, the story there of, um, you know, the, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, that was there with, uh, with uh, um, you know, Philip. And they were just sitting there and talking about the scriptures in the book of Acts chapter 8. And remember, he was reading the book of Isaiah, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah. And, and then Philip comes along and, he, and, and the guy says, man, do you know anything about this Isaiah and what it's talking about? And Philip said, well, since you ask, and he told him all about Jesus. And remember the eunuch said, hey, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? He said, well, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave? And the eunuch said, yep. So they got off his chariot, went into the water and got baptized. Uh, It's a great story of the Ethiopian eunuch. But the thing about that, that I, you know, told all that probably unnecessarily, but, but where were they sitting? They were sitting in his chariot. This Ethiopian eunuch was probably some kind of an envoy, some kind of ambassador that came from Ethiopia to the Holy Land to uh, do his work. And how did they get there? Chariot. It wasn't a ship by the merchants of the sea or anything like that. But this description unusually says that they send ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels or ships, you know, bulrushes upon the waters, saying, go ye swift messengers to a, to a nation... Um, and, and now there's a description of this nation. Notice some of the words here. Uh, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning hitherto, a nation meted out, trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. Um, that last phrase, the rivers have spoiled, the idea is that um, the, there's so many pr- rivers in, the, in this land that there's just, uh, there, it's, it's not like the rivers have ruined the land, some of you might be thinking we're talking about the Willamette and its uh, poisonous waters. <laughs> no, it, it's the idea is the, 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 there's littered rivers all over this land. That's not Ethiopia. Um, so it's, it, it's, that's where some people say, man, this must be talking about a different place. And this must be a faraway land where people come by the sea. And it, it's a land that has rivers. Uh, and, and there's spoiling of rivers because there's so many of them. And then the word scattered there in the uh, middle of verse 2, your margin says spread out. That's the idea. A land that's spread out. Boy, that's one of the things that um, we learn when we take our trips to Israel is how not spread out that region of the world is. You know, most of the Bible happened in, in a, an area the size of New Jersey. Um, it's such a tiny, tiny place. When we go to Israel, it's like we drive for five minutes and we're in a new Bible spot. You know, the very first day of our tour, we start in Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, where there was the great theater where Paul preached before the, you know, the, the Romans. And, and then you drive for 15 minutes and then you're at Mount Carmel where Elijah, you know, slew the prophets of Baal. And then 10 minutes later, you're at Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon. And then the next 20 minutes, you're driving by Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And then you know, an hour after that, we end up in Galilee where Jesus did all his miracles. Like, that's just the first day in Israel. Um, the point is, it's tiny. That, every time our group goes over, they're like, we're just so stunned how close everything is in the Bible. The Bible land was very tiny and everything was close. 
And it's interesting because the truth is the United States is spread out by far compared to anything biblical. Kind of interesting. People's worldview could be very different. And and, uh, in Bible times, they had a view that that was their big world. But there was a bigger world out there that was yet to be really figured out. So the, um, the land was scattered, and then the word peeled there, scattered and peeled. Um, the word peeled there um, uh, is kind of an interesting, interesting word, along with terrible. Now, meaning terrible would be awesome. Um, but the word peeled there means more of the idea of independence, a land of people that are independent from everybody else. They, they don't need other nations. Uh, independent uh, and... and uh, you know, the idea of peeled and terrible or awesome, a land scattered with rivers. This is why some people say, man, this is, this is the place that is none other than the United States. The Isaiah, you know, 18 prophecy, they'll say. And there's a few other evidences. And, and again, we could be talking about the near prophecy being Ethiopia, the far future prophecy being the United States. So what's going to happen to this land or what's, what's going on here? Well, it says, woe unto that land, verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. And then it goes on in verse 3. All ye inhabitants of the world, again, global. This, whenever we see global stuff, talking about the whole world, that's where Isaiah's gaze is going further than the local application. So he says, all ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains. And when he bloweth the trumpet, hear ye. The Lord's going to do something. And when you see this certain sign, ensign or flag, then watch and see what the Lord's going to do. Verse 4, For so the Lord said unto me, I will take my rest, and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon uh, herbs, and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Now, this is something that sounds very poetic, and you're thinking, oh, that's beautiful, some dew in the heat of harvest. It's actually a bummer. You don't want dew on your harvest in the heat of summer. That's a bad thing. Uh, I, I know that, by the way, too, because of uh, when I was a kid, bucking hay. Um, we were always thrilled when the farmers were, you know, uh, had their tractors out there, and they were baling their hay, and then we saw that rain was a-coming. That was always a good thing for us kids because we, the farmers were like, man, we got to get our hay in before it rains. Because when that hay was baled and if it got wet, it'd be totally ruined. It would get moldy and unusable. And they would lose that whole field of hay uh, if, if it got wet. So they would pass young you know, football players. Um, you know, normally on good sunny weather, they just pass like, uh, you know, so much per bale to buck the, the hay and put it up on the truck, get it in the barn. But when there was a threat of rain, they would double our, our cost. They'd say, man, if you get this hay in in the next, you know, hour, uh, and we'll pay you this much. Man, suddenly we're raking it in, and, and we'd work hard and fast because we were just raking in the bucks those summers when their hay was threatened. And that's the idea here is the Lord's saying, your harvest is going to be moldy and messed up. That's part of the judgment, the Lord's saying. Um, interesting. Verse 5 for before the, uh, before the harvest, uh, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening, in the flower he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon, uh, winter upon them. 
And in that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts, a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. By the way, that's also something you can see. United States, we grew fast and powerful early. You know, the Revolutionary War in, you know, uh, 1776, uh, we became a mighty nation right then. Uh, And we've been kind of awesome, (laughs) you know, in these biblical terms since then. Um, and, and, you know, you might say terrible and awesome uh, with World War II. We can talk about that, um, our involvement with World War I. Um, the United States has been this kind of description. So some would say maybe this is us. Um, a nation, um, ver- middle of verse 7, meted out and trodden underfoot whose land the rivers have spoiled to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. So th- this is the United States, if it is then what are we going to be doing in Mount Zion? And what's this? Keep in mind, this is, if it follows, you've got to remember textual constancy. And, and that is, we've been talking about in the last chapter, do you remember? When we were doing the Damascus prop, uh, prophecy, we were, we were seeing prophecies that were related to the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. So what's going to happen if this is the United States, which I'm not saying it is, it might be, but if it is, this would be a description of what the Lord's going to do with this nation, perhaps in the, the tribulation period and um, the millennial kingdom. Now, remember, I believe we're going to be raptured out of here. What, what country is going to be perhaps most affected by the rapture of the church? Have you thought about that? You see, this starts to answer a question, whether this is about the United States of America or not, I don't know. But one of the reasons, there's a couple reasons I believe possibly the United States is left out of Bible prophecy. Uh, China's mentioned, Iran, Russia, like I said earlier. So why is the United States left out? Well, largely because I believe the rapture of the church is going to cripple the United States more than any other country in the world. And I know that we're not, you know, Obama said we're no longer a Christian nation, um, and uh, um, that was heartbreaking to hear our president say that. But the sad thing is he's probably somewhat right. We've become very godless in a lot of ways. But still, I believe the United States has enough Christians in this country, in our military, in our law enforcement, our farmers, our truck drivers. I think there's enough Christians where the rapture of the church is going to really cripple this nation. That's what I believe. And that might just be the main reason why the United States is not even a factor is because we'll be crippled by the rapture of the church. There'll be other nations, you know, that'll not even be affected at all hardly because there's just not a Christian population there. You know, China, uh, if you're a Christian in China, you're, you're underground, man. And you're, you're one of those, you know, faithful Christians that are trying to just survive, but you're not necessarily high up government officials and those kinds of things. You know, China's not gonna be as affected, it seems, by the rapture of the church. And you could kind of go around the nations and consider what the rapture would do to those nations. I think the United States will be affected the most by the rapture of the church, perhaps, because we were founded on godly principles. We even used our Bibles to help sort of forge our uh, documents of the Declaration and the Bill of Rights and those things, our founding fathers. There's still enough of that remnant of that, of that in, in America where we'll be affected. The, the other possibility is not so bright, and that is... I wonder if the United States sort of internally implodes. I could see that happening quickly. Um, maybe we're not a factor in Bible prophecy because we're just not powerful anymore. But I could see us implode. Just, just watching us in this coronavirus crisis, this pandemic, and the way we've become so divided. 
and, you know, governors, you know, using their power in, in some ways that seem, you know, you know, overreaching and, and, um, and there's such division and nobody agrees on anything. Like, we're seeing some real possibilities of trouble in this country. Um, when it's life or death things and important things and we're acting like we are today, there's not a lot of hope for this nation unless we repent and turn to the Lord. So either we are not going to be a factor because the rapture of the church will, you know, cripple this nation. Uh, that'd be the best scenario in my opinion. But the possibility of us just imploding like the Roman Empire imploded. Nobody ever defeated the Roman Empire. They defeated themselves. Um, and uh, it's interesting that we are kind of headed that way, it seems, if we're not careful. And I believe we're sooner to that than maybe we'd like to, any of us would like to admit. That's the bummer of it all. So um, take it as you would. I've given you just a quick version of chapter 18, but that, that's what some people believe. And, and um, you can consider that, mull that over. Is it Ethiopia? Is it the United States? Is it the other one or the both? Uh, who knows? I'm not sure. But it is interesting to think about nonetheless. Well, chapter 19 moves to the burden of Egypt. Um, now, the Egyptians, interesting group of people. Uh, it's funny how we're all so intrigued by Egyptian, you know, uh, history. At least I, I've been, you know, because we have biblical accounts, of the, the children of Israel being in Egypt. Um, remember I told you guys, you need to watch the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. So uh, last weekend, me and my family, we uh, you know, iTunes did up and got that old movie. And uh, it's, a, it's better than I even remember. It's, it's an amazing, if you haven't seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, it is like three and a half hours long, but it really is a, an amazing uh, account of uh, what the Bible says happened in the Ten Commandments. And the Jews in Egypt, Ramses, all that, it's, it's great. Um, but something about us, we, we like the idea of Egypt and the hieroglyphics and the pyramids and the, the sphinxes and the and the, and the mummies, and we're intrigued by all that, even to this day. But, you know, it's funny because it, it's almost like the history of Egypt lures us in, just like Egypt would have lured them in in real life in those days. It'd be so easy to start walking like an Egyptian and talking like an Egyptian and being into that whole thing, because they, they had it going on. They were wealthy. They had all kinds of cool, you know, stuff. But as it turns out, a lot of it wasn't so cool. It was pagan. Um, you know, they were so into the afterlife and into mummies. They would mummify their friends, their kings, their neighbors. They would mummify their cats. Did you know they even mummified insects and bugs? They, f- they found tombs where there's little bug mummies, um, that, that these Egyptians. And, and, you know, there were millions over the centuries, millions of mummies that have been, you know, embalmed and entombed in, in Egypt. I was reading about this in history, you know, because of this, so much of the burial rituals, um, you know, thousands of years, misguided faith, you know, motivated them to build these immense tombs and, and their ingenuity and their design and, and just the, you know, the cost and labor and money of the embalming and their science of embalming. Like even to this day, we don't know how they did certain things. But over the centuries, the Egyptians would prepare for the afterlife. It was all about that. So they'd set up the person with their tomb and all their junk and their bugs and their, their pets. But um, the sad thing for them is it was all to no avail. Uh, with mummies basically over the centuries showing up everywhere in ancient Egypt to the present, tomb raiders and people digging up mummies. Mummies were surfacing everywhere. And um, as it turns out, they were using mummies 
in the 19th century European travelers exploring Egypt, you know, they sent home reports of that some of the household roofs of the locals, Egyptians, were, were made of sort of the thatched roofs out of mummy, uh, ground up mummy parts. They were using mummies for fertilizer. They would grind up mummies for fertilizer. Uh, there's uh, accounts actually of that. Um, I was reading about uh, how more bizarre millions of mummies were used in place of scarce timber for Egypt's wood-burning locomotives <laughs> back in the 1800s. Apparently, a good old mummy burns really well uh, and hot. Um, and uh, so that's a far cry from the destiny uh, that the original embalmers intended. Uh, their beloved departed uh, ended up steaming a locomotive or whatever. Um, you know, were the ancients, Egypt's, Egyptians, right to care about the afterlife? Yes. The problem is they had the wrong afterlife and the wrong way. Um, and, and that's why Egypt is intriguing. It's, it was so worldly and godless, and, and they, they had these false gods, and they worshipped all of these things. And, 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 and so what do you think is going to happen to Egypt in the long term? You know, this is, this is what you might say, well, those Egyptians. Now, remember, let's ask the question. What is Egypt always a picture of, a type of, in the Bible? Right. The world. The world and its system. Godlessness. Uh, secularism. Uh, paganism. Uh, that's what Egypt is always a picture of. And um, so, what do you think the final chapter of the Egyptian will be? Isaiah is going to give for us the near prophecy of the Egyptians and the far prophecy of the Egyptians. Just like he did in chapter 18, just like he did in chapter 17. He's following a pattern here. So what's going to ultimately happen? Well, you're probably thinking, well, they're going to be destroyed because they're, they're the worst of all. They're a picture. They're an illustration. They're synonymous with the world. So I bet you God's going to really let them have it. Be careful. When you start thinking you know what God's going to do, sometimes it's a bit of a shock. And I think you'll be shocked at this story and how this ends in chapter 19. So let's read verse 1. The burden of Egypt... Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud, and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Wow, what an amazing description. Now, there's a phrase here that you should be, as a Bible student, oh man, this is a recognizable phrase. The Lord's going to be riding upon the swift cloud. When does the Lord ride upon the clouds? Um, Well, whenever we read about that, uh, the context of that is kind of interesting. Uh, jot this down. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. It says, Jesus is talking about the end of the world in Matthew 24. And he says in verse 30, Jesus says, and, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. God coming in the clouds speaks of the second coming of Christ. It's almost like with Isaiah chapter 19, Isaiah's getting right to it. He's, he's almost skipping the near prophecy with Egypt. And he's, going, he's already talking about something that gives us sort of the idea of the second coming of Christ. Um, it's not just there. It's Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It says this, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Jesus in his second coming, they're going to see him coming on the clouds. Um, and uh, it's going to be quite the scene when he shows up. Um, so it's interesting, this, this idea of coming on the clouds. 
Uh, it's interesting to me that we see um, this, this description for the Egyptians. And this is going to be very end times kind of thing that's going to happen to the Egyptians. So this could be started out right when the second coming of Christ happens. Maybe this is where we begin with the Egyptians. Well, it says, it'll happen in those days, verse 2, I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight everyone against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, and his kingdom against kingdom. By the way, this was interesting back in the Arab Spring. Remember when Mubarak got out, ousted and, um, and then, you know, leader after leader and the Arab Spring, it was a civil war kind of environment in Egypt. And some of us were thinking, wow, this Egyptian prophecy sort of starting to kind of come to pass, Egyptian against Egyptian. And that's still the climate of Egypt by and large today. I wouldn't take a tour group. I've taken groups into Egypt, um, but I wouldn't do that today. It's, it's, it's a little too dangerous uh, to bring a group into Egypt. There's too many dangerous things going on, and there's still a lot of um, you know, controversy swirling in Egypt. But I believe in the very last days uh, during the tribulation, it's going to be like a civil war in Egypt, according to this. Kingdom against kingdom, city against city. Verse 3. And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof. And I will destroy the counsel thereof. And they shall seek the idols and the charmers and to them that have familiar spirits and to the wizards. And the Egyptians will I give over to the hand of a cruel Lord. And fierce kings shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, by the way, um, uh, there was a cruel Lord. This, this actually did come to pass uh, not long after Isaiah's time. Um, there was this guy, uh, Sametichus, uh II, who uh, reigned from 664 to 525 B.C., and he was this cruel Lord, probably. And the near local application of this prophecy, um, this all came down just like this. And they, they tried to get to their charmers and their sorcerers and their wizards. Remember the names, anybody, for extra points tonight? The names of the two guys that were the wizards during the time of Moses before Pharaoh? Janas and Jambres. Those two guys, remember they were the ones who duplicated the, the sort of plagues of Moses, only making matters worse. But they could only duplicate the first half of them. But after a while, they couldn't hang with God uh, with their little sorceries and what have you. Um, well, this is what the Egyptians would turn to during this time uh, when the Egyptians started to be, be under a, a great oppressor. So that would be the near application. But could it be during the tribulation that they have some kind of oppressor? And some argue that it could be the Antichrist himself will make war against the Egyptians. Well, why would he do that? I think you might see at the end of this chapter. So I'll put a fierce Lord, cruel Lord over them. A fierce king will rule over them. Verse five, and the waters shall fail from the sea and the river shall be wasted and dried up. Man, if you, if you lose the Nile River in Egypt, you're toast. Um, and that's what's gonna happen, it says here. Um, and they shall turn the rivers far away and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up, and the reeds and the flags shall wither. The paper reeds by the brooks, by the mouth of the brooks, and everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and no more. The fishers also shall mourn, and they that cast angle into the brooks shall lament fishers, and they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. Moreover, they that work in fine flax, they that weave networks shall be confounded and they shall be broken 
in the purposes thereof, all that makes uh, sluices and ponds for fish. So basically, man, uh, the river's going to dry up. Now, interesting, since the Ataturk, uh, pardon me, the Aswan d- uh, Dam, the Aswan Dam was built, you can look it up, um, this, uh, this section of scripture is starting to be fulfilled from the time of January 15th, 1971. Um, the dam was completed, but the river has been dying ever since. They, they, they feel like, you know how sometimes dams seem to kind of hurt rivers? I remember as a kid when they built the Applegate Dam. And, uh, you know, I grew up fishing. Me and my next door neighbor, we'd catch trout every morning out of the Applegate River. And it was just easy. Grasshoppers, great little trout. But I remember when they built the dam, it changed the whole, you know, uh, really the, the river was no longer the same. And it, the temperature was different. The fish were different. Uh, and you'd argue it got more stale in the summer. And it was just kind of weird to watch the changing of a river. But they're saying of all the, the dams that have been built in the world, some are grieving the Aswan Dam as one of the worst uh, to the environment. Uh, and it's really caused trouble for that region of the world. Um, the Aswan Dam. So uh, some argue that maybe this prophecy is coming to fulfillment slowly but surely. Or maybe it'll be fulfilled in the last days to the nth degree that even this is seeming to talk about. Verse 11, Surely the princes of Zoan uh, are fools. The counsel of the wise counselors of Pharaoh has become brutish or stupid. The word brutish in the King James is just the way they said stupid. So the counselors of Pharaoh have become stupid. How say ye unto Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of the ancient kings? Where are they? Where are thy wise men? And let them tell thee now, and let them know um, what the Lord of hosts hath purposed upon Egypt. The princes of Zoan are become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt. They, have, uh, they, ha- they that are of the stay of the tribes thereof, the Lord hath mingled a perverse spirit in the midst thereof, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work thereof, as a drunken man staggereth in his vomit. Neither shall there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, branch or rush, may do. So Egypt has become, you know, very much like this today. Where are the wise men of Egypt, the pharaohs? Where is the glory of Egypt? It's not there anymore. Um, Egypt has become sort of this place that's not as, as uh, fun as it once was. And uh, there's just a lot of brutish men. Um, the Arab Spring has proven that out. And it's, you know, wherever the Arab Spring, you know, it's funny how we got all weepy, at least some people got all weepy when the Arab Spring, oh, this is so wonderful. The Arab Spring was the worst thing that ever happened to those nations. And we better pray that that doesn't happen to other nations. You know, the Jordanians are worried that the Arab Spring will come to them. Because right now, the Jordanians are one of the few more modern, even though they're still technically third world, they're, they're better than most of the Middle Eastern countries. But um, there's the threat of ISIS and those guys wanting to sort of have the Arab Spring happen there too. And that could be a really bad thing for the Jordanians. But um, that happened to Egypt back in like 2016. And it's been bad ever since. So maybe that's being fulfilled even as we speak. I don't know, but it's going to be even further fulfilled as time goes by. Now, um, now we're going to see some uh, sort of 
um, phrase that, that's going to have to do more with the, I think, the last days, the seven years of tribulation, the millennial kingdom. And it's that phrase, in that day. What's that day referring to? The day of the Lord. That's that flag that we should see when Isaiah says, in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. And he says that uh, five times in the, the rest of this chapter, and that gives us five points to look at. So, um, so the first point, number one, if you're jotting down notes, we're going to see verses, you know, one, uh, 16 through 17, we're going to see uh, Judah's control of Egypt. Judah, uh, or Israel's control of Egypt. It says in verse 16, in that day shall Egypt be like unto women. It shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Every one that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. Man, uh, not a politically correct thing to say. I didn't say it, but basically Isaiah said the, the men in Egypt in that day are going to act like women. Sorry, didn't say it. Bible said it. But the idea is they're not going to be the guys that are all brave, ready to just march out into battle. Um, they're going to be afraid. That's, that's the idea here. And uh, they're going to be afraid because of the, the terror of Judah. Um, and so remember, when Christ returns, um, the Jews are going to be saved. The Jews and the men of Judah and Israel are going to be on the side of the Lord. Um, but there's going to be a terror upon them in that day. But verse 18, in that day, that's the second one. It says, um, in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak in the language of Canaan and swear unto the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. Um, this is interesting. So we see here, you know, uh, in that day, Judah's control of Egypt. But now we see uh, Egypt, uh, um, they start to make an alliance to the Lord. Instead of fighting the Lord, it seems that they make an alliance with the Lord. And we see that they, th they start speaking the language of Canaan, which would be the Hebrew language. Some of you might say, well, Brett, the, the, the land of Canaan, was, that was before the Jews were there. But did you know the Canaanites spoke a language that was very similar to Hebrew? Um, this is something you find out when you talk to the linguistic experts in Israel and you realize Hebrew is very closely associated to uh, the Canaanite language. And so um, I believe this is just speaking of they're going to suddenly, the Egyptians are going to be starting to talk Hebrew. And it's because they're going to change sides. That's the idea. So you got, you know, uh, the Egyptians allying themselves to the Lord. Verse 19 brings us the third in that day. In that day, in verse 19, shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Wow, who would have thought that? And the pillar at the border uh, thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry to the Lord because the oppressors. And he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, and he shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. What's this? Can you imagine what we're just reading? 
uh, maybe you grew up knowing, oh, those are the Egyptians, they're bad, they're, they're, they're doomed, they're pagan, the end. But here we see at the very end of all this stuff in the millennial kingdom, we're going to see the Egyptians turn to the Lord. Who would have thunk it? I love this, and I'll tell you why. This is so much like the Lord, that he chooses to, to save the most unsavable. Um, the Lord, it seems like he delights in reaching to the guttermost. Remember how the scriptures say the Lord would go to the uttermost? I think he goes to the guttermost. I think there was some preacher from the old, uh, one of the revivals, I think it was the Azusa Street Reviver, the, the preacher was saying, the Lord saves even to the guttermost. And, and he was talking about the people that were in the gutter in their lives. And, and the Lord saves those people. Um, have you ever had somebody who you thought was the last person on the planet that would ever become a Christian and they end up being, being a Christian? Um, man, I've got friends that I knew in high school. That I thought, oh, they're never going to be, like they're the last dude in the world that would ever accept Christ and be a Christian. Now they're friends of mine and they're pastoring churches. Like who would have thought um, that the Lord would do such a great work? But he's going to save Egypt. The reason we know this is the far future fulfillment is because this has never happened in Egypt's history. The Egyptians have never turned to the Lord. Jehovah is the word here. Never. Uh, but that's going to happen. And that's the third thing. They're going to worship um, the Lord. Worship will be instituted there as they build altars and worship the Lord during the millennial kingdom. So number one, verse 16 and 17, um, Judah will control Egypt. Number two, verse 18, uh, Egypt um, starts to, you know, ally, make an alliance with the Lord of hosts. Um, and then number three, we see true worship starting to happen in Egypt, verses 19 through 22. Who would have thought it? Verse 23 brings us to our fourth, fourth in that day. And this gets interesting. It says in verse 23, in that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. Huh? Now we're bringing the Assyrians into salvation? Who would have thought that? The Assyrians, if the Egyptians were the most carnal, worldly, sinful group of people, the Assyrians were the most horrifying, terrorist kind of people. The Assyrians, are, you know, throughout biblical history, the Assyrians are the ones who skinned their enemies alive. They'd keep them alive as long as possible while skinning them. They would reupholster their furniture with human skins they would pie up skulls outside of their cities of all their people they killed in battle so that anybody that came visited their towns, you know, they, they would have these skulls just to be a reminder, don't mess with the Assyrians. They, they impaled people. Uh, they hung people uh, and, and they had a sharp stick from coming up and they would slowly lower a person on a stick and let their body just very slowly sink onto that pole, um, slowly killing. Like I could go on about Assyrian history uh, I'll leave it at that. And you think, oh man, there's no way those Assyrians can ever be saved. As it turns out, there's going to be a road that goes from Egypt to Assyria. Now, the Assyrians are not a people group now, but that region of the world is part of Syria, part of Iran and Iraq, um, the Assyrian culture uh, today. And so there's going to be, during the millennial kingdom, large groups of people including the Egyptians and parts of those regions of the world where they're going to turn to the Lord uh, in the millennial kingdom or maybe even in the tribulation period. They're going to finally realize they've gone the wrong way and they will turn. And there's going to be a road 
that's going to connect between the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Now, did you know there's already a road that does that? It's an ancient road. But right now, it's not a, a road you'd want to drive. Uh, you, you, you and I, especially as Americans, we'd be in real trouble if we drove the whole length of the, it's called the Via Morris, or the Way by the Sea. Um, I told you a few weeks ago about the two main highways, the King's Highway, which goes more into Jordan. But the Via Maris is the road that would go from Egypt by the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and then go up, you know, through, uh, uh, you know, Mount Carmel in that region, and then up into the Golan Heights. Remember the road to Damascus I was talking about? Via Maris. That's the road today. And it's, it was called the Via Maris back then, the way by the sea. And it will go, eventually go all the way up into Assyria. Right now, it'd be a tough tough drive to go to those countries and try to get there with your American passport through all those. But there's going to come a day where that road's going to be reopened and there's going to be peace and prosperity and the Assyrian and the Egyptian are going to be on the Lord's side. Who would have thought this? This is crazy to think that the Egyptians and the Assyrians at the end of all things are going to end up on the right side of things. That's amazing to me. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God is gracious. And if God can save the Assyrian, and if God can save the Egyptian, guess what? He can save you. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, And I find great peace in this. But there's one more in that day. Um, We're calling that, you know, in that day, there'll be um, peace established on the earth. That's number, uh, what is that? Number four. And that's verses 23, uh, just verse 23. um, Peace established on the earth. And then in that day, fifth and final, we're going to see verses 24 and 25. It's um, that God's people will be expanded. That's the final one. God's people will be expanded. So you got Judah's control of Egypt, number one. You've got Egypt allying with the Lord, number two. You've got worship instituted, number three. You've got peace established on the earth, number four. And number five, you've got God's people expanded. It says in verse 24, in that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt, with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. There is a difference still between Israel and the Egyptians, and that is an inheritance, the people of God, But isn't it great? The Egyptians and the Assyrians, they get to be adopted in. And by the way, so are you and I as Gentile people in America. We're the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Why does it seem to leave the church out of this group? I'll tell you, there's an answer. I believe the rapture of the church is going to happen. You and I are going to be in a very different situation. Once you're raptured and you're up with the Lord, he's given you your new body forever to be with the Lord. But the people on the earth are still going to be in a different state than we will be. And they're going to be following the Lord in a different capacity. You and I, our job will be to rule and reign with the Lord, and he'll give us responsibilities over the earth. Um, but these people will be on the earth. It's a different relationship because they aren't the raptured people. They aren't the, the church of Jesus Christ. There is a difference between the church and then these people that are mentioned here. But these people will serve uh, in, you know, serve the Lord. And a lot of them in Jerusalem at the temple where, where Christ rules and reigns during the millennial kingdom. I hope I haven't lost you guys, but for those of you that are putting all these pieces together, uh, isn't it amazing that the Egyptians and the Assyrians will be a part of that in the millennial kingdom? Who would have thought? I just think that's the measure of God's grace. That's amazing. 
Well, there's one more short little chapter we can tackle tonight, chapter 20. And um, I'm going to call this chapter, The Truth Exposed. Here's why. Verse 1. In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off your loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. I told you, truth exposed right here. (laughs) Here's poor Isaiah. Aren't you glad you weren't an Old Testament prophet? Um, You know, I mean, this is a tough day at the office right here. The Lord said, okay, strip down naked. Now, some people try to make the argument, you know, uh, the Baptist church when I was a little kid, you know, now he was, you know, they stripped off his outer garments, but he surely had on his underwear, you know, the linen that was under his robes. And that's not true. And I'll show you why in a second. He's a walking illustration. And he's going to do this for how long? Three years, walking around naked in Israel. Um, And so the truth exposed, what truth? Well, this is where, um, uh, you know, Isaiah is speaking something both with an object lesson and with his words. Now, by the way, verse, verse one, in the year that Tartan came, Tartan was a, a Syrian general uh, around 711 BC. And, uh, and he came to Ashdod, which was down in the, what is today more the Gaza Strip area, the southern, southwestern side of Israel. And during that time, this was like a marker in history. Um, that's when, um, you know, the, the king of Assyria, who at that day of time was Sargon, uh, no, not Lord of the Rings. The, these are biblical characters here. And, and it was during that time that God called Isaiah to run around naked for three years. That's the point. And so what is he supposed to do? What is it, what's the message that he's supposed to give? And so we read that in verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years, for a sign and a wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be afraid and ashamed. Naked and afraid. Uh, I saw a commercial. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, that there's actually a show called that. We've lost our marbles uh, as a culture. But this is a biblical theme right here. Naked and afraid, these people, they're, it says that they're you know, going to be running around, as it says, they're barefoot with their rear ends uncovered. That's where you can't say Isaiah was wearing linen. He, that would have that ruined the picture. Uh, he was walking around stark naked. That's the idea. And they'd be afraid, verse 5, they shall be afraid and ashamed and their expectation uh, and Egypt of their glory. Verse 6, and the inhabitants of this isle or country, better, better translation there, shall say in that day, behold, such is our expectation. Whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria and how shall we escape? So during the local or the near application of this prophecy of Isaiah to the Ethiopians and to the Egyptians, chapter 18 and 19, Isaiah was then told to go and walk around naked and say, okay, Egyptians, Ethiopians, you guys have to repent. And uh, and at that time, they really didn't repent, but ultimately they will, and they'll come around and they'll hear the message 
of God during the millennial kingdom, maybe even during the tribulation period. What a radical thing that Isaiah the prophet was called to do. And, and um, the reason I think this is a good place for us to kind of stop tonight and think about this is how are we doing when it comes to um, God's call on you and on me to be those who are given to the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Fortunately for you and me, the Lord, we don't have to take our clothes off of that one. We, we get to preach the gospel, and we're called to share the good news with people, and we're not called to this, this kind of a level of Old Testament prophet. Thank the Lord. But, but we are still called to give the message of repentance and salvation through God's grace. And I, I'm, you know, concerned that we have become like the Jews. Did you know the Jews were not at all given for evangelism? To this day, you will never find really an evangelistic Jew. You will not find Jews proselytizing or, or trying to encourage, become a Jew, do a Jewish Seder dinner. Did you know when the Jews see us Gentiles do a Passover dinner, like, what are you guys doing? Like, that's wacko. They think we're totally nuts. You, you never find Jews running around saying, become a Jew. There's no evangelistic program within Judaism. You're either a Jew or you're not. And, uh, and um, the Jews might even say, well, I wish that the Lord would have chose someone else. Like they're not even trying to be evangelistic. But here's the thing that's interesting. God told them that they were supposed to point people to Jehovah, their, the God, the great I am of the burning bush of Moses. The Jews were given the assignment to be lights in the world. But the Jews, they, they said, well, we got our God and uh, we're going to do that. And, and they got tangled up in some other gods too. But the Jews never really followed their, their call to be a light to the, to the Gentile nations. You know what actually happened? By the time the first, first century rolled around, when, when uh, you know, uh, Jesus was on the scene, did you know the Jews, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their mantra was the Gentiles were made by God for one purpose— to fuel the fires of hell. You know, in those days, if the Pharisees brushed up against a Gentile, they would run home, burn their garments, take a bath and put on fresh clothes because they came in contact. Uh, That's worse than the COVID crisis. Burn your clothes and take a bath and then you're okay. That's how they viewed Gentiles back in those days. Um, And they lost one of the purposes that they were called to be as a light even to the Gentiles. So God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to blind Jews, and the Jews have been blinded for centuries now. And I'm going, to, I'm going to work through the Gentiles, and I'm going to make a church out of the Gentile nations. And that's what God's been doing these last couple thousand years. And, and then the Lord says, now, Gentile church, I want you to be salt and light. And you and I are called to be uh, those who give the message of the gospel. Of, and it's not just Pastor Brett's job. It's your job as well to share the gospel with people. Are you afraid? Are you afraid to do that? You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, s- some of us are so afraid about what people might think about us or what people might say about us, and, and we're trying not to offend. Meanwhile, we could care less that people are headed for hell and destruction. I remember hearing one Bible preacher say something to the extent of, you know, um, you know I, I want to scare the hell out of people. And then, and then he said, now some of you are so upset that I said the, the word hell that you're not even thinking about what I was talking about, about sharing the gospel so that you can literally scare literally hell out of them. 
Um, and it's funny because our little, you know, uh, uh, dainty Christian, you know, morals were kind of like, oh, he used the word hell. And we could care less that people are actually going to hell. But the, the guy that used the word hell, we get all, you know, in a tizzy and sanctimonious. I, I do worry that we have this weird, tweaked out sense of, of purpose. And the truth is, there's a lot of people who are headed for destruction tonight. If the rapture of the church happened, they would not be raptured. They would be left behind and they would go through the tribulation period. You know, I I hear people say, well, you know, I've been telling my family members and stuff, but you know, I I think that during the tribulation, maybe, you know, they'll, they'll accept Christ during them. That's possible. There will be people to accept Christ. But, you know, that's a gamble. You know, when people say, Brett, I'm going to see if you guys are wrong. And if you're raptured and you're suddenly gone, then I'll become a Christian during the tribulation period. And then I'll be saved. And there's a couple things about that. Number one, if you're a Christian in the tribulation and you become a Christian, the church is already gone. So you won't be part of the church. You're what's called a tribulation saint. And those people are going to be beheaded because they're unwilling to take the mark of the beast. Not only that, you're gambling because the Bible says, and, and this is something that's going to happen according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that the Lord's going to send to the earth a strong delusion. There's going to be a blinding of people's eyes, and there's going to be some people saved, but a lot of people are just going to be totally duped. And it's going to be this supernatural kind of duping that may be out of your control at that point. Like, that's a bit of a gamble if you ask me. Well, we'll just see... But I almost feel like some Christians are gambling with their family members and their friends saying, well, you know, I've told them about the Lord. And so if, they're, if I'm raptured and they're in the tribulation, they'll remember that I said something about that once, you know, back in 84 when I told them about that. Man, I hope, I don't want us to be obnoxious and beating people over their heads, you know, with our Bibles. But at the same time, where's the boldness? Here's Isaiah willing to strip down naked for three years, walking around saying, repent, follow the Lord. <laughs> and I think, wow, what a, what a guy Isaiah must have been to, to be willing to do that. I'm reminded of Jonah, who was almost unwilling to go to Nineveh, godless. By the way, the Ninevites, they were Assyrians. They were the people skinners and the pole sitters and that whole thing that I was telling you about. And, and no wonder Jonah, God said go, and Jonah said no, and he went the opposite direction and finally got swallowed, barfed out on the beach, and made his way to Nineveh. And then he just kind of half-hearted, okay, everybody repent or you're going to be judged. And the whole city repents. And then Jonah goes and pouts because the whole city was saved. And he's like, I wanted to see the Assyrians destroyed. I almost wonder if we have that sort of Jonah mentality. Like, well, you know, I don't know. People deserve what they're going to get anyway. And we, it's like we don't have a compassion. Lord, soften our hearts. You know, give us the heart of the Lord. What does the Lord think about, you know, us? And, 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 and what does the Lord think about the people of the earth today? We're, we're told in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise about his coming and return, uh, as men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. What does the Bible say the heart of the Lord is? He is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to have everlasting life. Man, I hope you and I have the heart of the Lord, especially in these days. If there was ever a day to be bold about the gospel of Jesus Christ, man, um, now's the day. I hope you, hope you see that. I hope you're not a closet Christian. Uh, God forbid. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this reminder as Isaiah boldly goes around declaring truth, even though it wasn't popular. Lord, we see misinformation left and right in our culture. We see ulterior motives of greed and money and power that drives the untruths. Lord, there's a day where we don't even know who to believe anymore. But I pray that you'd stir up your church, that we'd be more bold to speak the truth. Lord, I pray that we'd speak it with authority and that people might sense just the reality of what we share, the power and the authority. Even as people spoke of your son Jesus on this earth, that the people would marvel and they'd say, he speaks as one having authority, not as the Pharisees and the scribes. Lord, I pray that the the message of the gospel might come from our lips and, and that the world would hear it and perceive weightiness and truth to the things that we share. That many might come to know your son, Jesus, be saved, confess, repent, and go to heaven. Lord, may many, many people come to know you in these last days. Make us, Lord, more effective in the passing on of truth. And this we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.